following message is from a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. It is an honor to, to always be here as well, too. Hey, thank you very much. You know, my uh, college roommate, Philam, he is in St. Louis today with his wife, his dear wife, and some friends, so he wouldn't be here today. So I texted him. He's part of this church now. So I said, Fee, I am speaking at ICC Church. Uh, will you be there? And he, here's what he texted me. He says, no, I am going to be in St. Louis. But here's what he says. Sorry to miss it. Hopefully, the third time's a charm for you. Our guest speaker last Sunday gave a great sermon. He was well-spoken, organized, and provided practical application. I hope the congregation doesn't see the opposite this coming week. Oh, God. I pray for his soul, all right? Please, when you see him, share the gospel with him because he really, really needs it. And for some of you guys here, uh, I, I know some of the youth are here, give me 30 minutes, all right? Give me 30 minutes. I will try to make it interesting, but along the way, if you have to fall asleep, just don't nod your head too much because then it discourages me and my energy level goes down. But I will try to make it fast, all right? Here, here's what we're going to study today. Every single year, I love to pick a character. And for about five, six months, that's all I read. And I study their character. I look at the character. I just reread it and reread it and reread it over and over again. For me, that is the part that makes me grow. I did that with David. I did that with Joseph. I did that with John chapters 1 through 7. And so for the last three months, I've been on this journey studying Elijah. And so for the last four months, all I've been reading is 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18. That's all I've been reading and praying and asking God, Lord, what is it that you're asking me to do? What is it can I learn from the life of Elijah? So today, we're going to look at Elijah, specifically 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And along the way, if Steve gets to invite me back again, I would love to share some other thoughts about Elijah. But today, we're going to look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Before I do that, let me just at least paint the background just so you know the context in which we're at. For over a hundred years, prior, during the hundred years, Israel was literally led by three kings. Past uh, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. For the most part, right, it, it, it's very, uh, it was very, everything was going well. There was stability in the kingdom, all of those different things. But yet, at the same time, there was issues, right? King Saul, toward the end of, the, of his kingdom, just kind of went off the deep end. Solomon started out really well. He was the brightest and most talented of all of the kings. But he got into trouble because, you know, a lot of times he got distracted by women and his love for women. But after the end of Solomon's rule, a civil war broke out. It was then divided into a northern kingdom referred to as Israel and a southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Let me give you some information on the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is at, that's Judah. The southern kingdom had 17 kings during the span of a couple hundred years. Out of the 17, 
Eight of them followed the Lord their God, but nine of them were wicked. This is where Jerusalem is located. This is where the Babylonians invaded. This is where they destroyed the walls. When you read Nehemiah, when you read Ezra, it's taking place in the southern kingdom. When Nehemiah has a burden to rebuild the walls because the walls of Jerusalem are broken or torn down, that's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, which is the context that we're going to read today, which Elijah takes place in, the northern kingdom had 19 kings during that span. And all of them, all 19, were wicked according to Scripture. Here's what Scripture says about them. Each of these kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. All 19 kings. All 19 kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's very similar to the book of Judges after post-Joshua. A lot of times the judges and the Israelites also did evils in the eyes of the Lord. It's a constant theme that we see amongst the Israelites all the time. Well, we go into 1 Kings chapter 1, and it begins this. Now, Elijah the Tishbit of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, let me just stop there and just go through a couple of things. Elijah's name, a lot of times, if you were to break it down, is literally El and Jah with the I in between that connects the two. The Hebrew name for God is Elohim, which can be abbreviated to El. That is the beginning of Elijah's name. The second part, Jah, is the word for Jehovah. I connects it. So Elijah's literally name means my God is Jehovah. So Elijah, my God is Jehovah, the Tishbit of Tishbe in Gilead. What does that mean? He came from obscurity. It literally means that this guy came from a rural area. He's a Tishbe from this place called Tishbe. And no one really knew where Tishbe was. It just wasn't kind of a rural area, small little town. But we do know when the author was writing it, well, we know where Gilead is. So Tishbe is somewhere in Gilead, right? For instance, a couple weeks ago, my brother and my sister-in-law lives in Payson, Arizona. I'm not sure if you guys have ever been to Payson, Arizona, or ever will eventually roam to Payson, Arizona. When you land in Phoenix, you get in a car, and for the next hour and 45 minutes, you drive to Payson, Arizona. The nearest Costco is an hour away. The nearest Target is an hour away. There is nothing in Payson, Arizona. They have 3G wireless, all of these different things. It feels like you've stepped into the eight late 80s or early 90s. That's pace in Arizona. I still remember we were going to church and we ran out of uh, space in the car. And I said to my sister-in-law, hey, I'm going to take an Uber. And my sister-in-law says to me, Tommy, you're impatient. There's no Uber. And I'm sitting there, so how in the world do you get around if you don't have a car? And she hands me this card and says, there's a guy here in Payson, and if you need a ride, just call him, and he'll come and pick you up. So Payson's different. It is out there. I'm going to Indonesia next, uh, next week. So after today, I actually jump on a plane on Thursday, and I go to Japan then I go to uh, Malaysia to meet with our Resource Global in Malaysia. Then I go to uh, Indonesia to meet with our Resource Global team in Indonesia. I come back home. Then I have to go to D.C. Then I have to go to Berlin. Then I have to go to Nairobi, so where I'm going to meet with Pastor Steve. So there's a lot of traveling here in the next couple of weeks. But when I go to Indonesia, there's literally 13,000 islands in the country of Indonesia. 
I bet you for the majority of the people here, you're familiar with Jakarta, Indonesia. It is the capital city, it is the biggest of all the city, it has 13 million people who are in Jakarta, but there's 13,000 islands. There are times when I meet people and they tell me an island, they said, you probably have never and will never hear this island because some of these islands are very rural. Some of these islands that you go to, people earn maybe about $50 a month, $100 a month. There's no Wi-Fi. They live in huts, different things like that. Jakarta, we're familiar, but a lot of times there's... So Elijah comes. He, he's a tishbit, a tishbit. He's rural. He comes out of obscurity. But yet at the same time, he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And so this guy who is the Tishbit of Tishbe in Gilead goes to Ahab, who is the king of the northern kingdom. And how this random guy who lived in obscurity gets a meeting with the king, I have no idea. Immediately he says to the king, as soon as he meets him, Neither do nor rain these years except by my word. He gives them a threat. And so if you ever notice about Elijah, you're, you're going to see he's kind of like John the Baptist. He's kind of like Paul. He's a little rough around the edges. He really kind of just says whatever is on his mind. He doesn't always have a lot of social grace within all of these different things. And he says to him, there will be no dew or rain except by my word. Why is that? Why is that so important? What's happening here? Well, if you go one chapter back to chapter 16, you don't have to turn to it. Let me read it. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 9. Here's what it writes in, 20, in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Remember, Judah is southern kingdom. We're talking about northern kingdom. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, king Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel, the northern kingdom, in Samaria for 22 years. Now, if you guys understand, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Now you can understand a little bit if you remember John chapter 4, when the Israelites say they do not go through Samaria, you can kind of understand why. Northern kingdom, 19 kings, all of them bad. And so now a lot of times Ahab has his capital city in Samaria. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. What does that mean? There's 19 kings in the northern kingdom, and all of them were bad. If Ahab was the worst of all of them, that out of all the 19, he was the worst. Now, that's kind of interesting. Did he start off bad? And it never mentions in this verse, but later on you'll hear, Ahab had two sons. He had a guy named Ahaziah, who literally means owned by Jehovah, Ahaziah. And he had another son, Jehoram, which is literally Jehovah is entitled. So that somehow or another, 
was Ahab part of faith and fell away or all of those different things? And later on, you're going to meet his wife, Queen Jezebel. Now, if Ahab is the worst of all the kings, out of all 19 kings, he's the worst. You're going to find out the true villain of all of this whole story is not Ahab, but Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel is going to be the worst of all of them. And so what happens as if it had been the... And so Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He, as a result of that marriage, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, the capital city. In addition, Jezebel really wanted to make Baal the national religion of the northern kingdom. So what's going on here? What is Baal and why is this important? Baal is literally the god of lightning and storm and responsible for the fertility of the land. Baal is the god of lightning and storm and responsible for the fertility of the land. For both Ahab and Jezebel, they really want to make sure that their land was fertile. Their land was rich. Because when you have fertile land, when you have good crops, what does it increase? You make money. And money establishes power and influence in the land. For them, Baal was the answer to all of their problems in their mind. If I worship Baal and later on the goddess Asherah, if I worship them, it will solve all of our problems. And pretty soon, Baal became their god. It became what they worship. It became everything that they focused on. And to the point that they wanted to make this the national religion of their area. Sort of reminds us of us, right? Sort of reminds us of us. Because too often we have certain ideas of what will make us successful. Too often we have certain beliefs, whether it's a job, whether it's a career, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's influence, whether it's a grade in school, whether it's the school that we, get, that we go in, all of those things. And those become our gods. Those things we hold up on the pedestal. And pretty soon, they drive our life. Pretty soon, that's all we're aiming. That's all we're focused on. And it becomes an obsession. And I'm not saying a lot of times those dreams, those goals, those little things that you have, are they going to make us feel good to have money? Yeah, it's going to make you feel good. Hey, to get into good school, to get power influence, yes, it's going to open many doors. But will it last is it something that you will eventually get to the point, once you've achieved it, say, that was worth it? Only you could decide that. There's this one individual I got along with, and I got to know him. His name was Mark Whitaker. If you ever get a chance later on when you get home, Google Mark Whitaker, but more so watch the movie that was based off his life. It was actually called Informant, and Matt Dillon played Mark Whitaker. 
Well, Mark Whitaker got a job working in a company, a biotech firm. And this biotech firm produced this additive called Lysin. And Lysin was the additive that you put into animals and made it look a little bit bigger. That's why your chicken's a little bit bigger compared to other places. And so Mark Whitaker earned $300,000 in his job working for this biotech firm. Well, one day the executives of the biotech firm says, Mark, we want to bring you into the family. Well, I thought I was part of the family, so what in the world are you talking about? Here's what we're going to do. You earn $300,000 now. We're going to increase your salary to $3 million. But here's what we need you to do. We need you to lead the team that helps us make sure the prices are fixed. While this biotech firm had, in some sense, if many of you guys are familiar, a price-fixing scheme. So they, along with their two competitors based on Korea and Japan, decided that they were going to have a certain price that they were going to have. It's illegal to have price-fixing schemes amongst competitors. It's antitrust laws. So we're going to decide that, right? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take $3 of every million of product that we sell, and that $3 will go to the executives of my com this company and the company in Japan and Korea, and us as executives, besides our stock prices, will all benefit from this. Well, Mark actually had to make that decision, $3 million. He says, okay, by the way, you earned $3 million, but in two years, you will earn $10 million. Mark says, wow. And Mark was not a believer. And he said, Tommy, I was so obsessed with about money. I wanted to make money. So I agreed to it. Well, he went home and told his wife, Ginger. And Ginger immediately said to me, here's what you need to do. You're going to report yourself to the police. And you're going to report yourself to the FBI. And you're going to go to jail. And when you get out of jail, I will be with you. I will still be loyal to you. I'll still be married to you. But you're going to have to sit there and report these guys because what you're doing is illegal and wrong. And no matter what money we have and earn from it, I will not take that money. You understand? And so he says, yes. So he went to the FBI. He reported what was going on. And for three years, he had to wear a wire against these guys. And so for three years, he's drawing a salary of $3 million and blah, 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 and all the other stuff. Well, these guys go to jail. But remember, Mark is obsessed about money. And so he realizes when these guys go to jail, all my stock options, because they're not fully vested, because you have to stay for a number of years before it becomes fully vested, I won't get this money. So Mark decides that he's going to write a letter from the president, he doctored a letter from the president to himself, vesting all of his stock, and so he'll always get paid. Well, that's wrong. That's illegal. And so later on, Dak gets brought up to the FBI, and he had full immunity where he didn't go to jail. But the FBI says, because of what you did, you will lose your full immunity. And so his immunity was gone. His wife then comes up to him and negotiates with the FBI a six-month sentence. But he has to give up all of his money, all of his stock options. He can't have a single thing. What does he do? He's obsessed about money. And so he tells his wife, forget it. I'm not taking. I'm going to jail and keeping my money. So he ends up getting an eight-year sentence. And his wife stayed with him during this whole time.
And what happens in jail for eight years? He comes to know the Lord. Because he says, by the second week, I'm sitting in jail and said, what do I, what in the world did I do? And in walks Chuck Colson. And there for the next month, for the next eight years, Chuck ministers him. And he becomes a Christ follower. He creates a job transition program in jail. He begins to study the Bible and all of those different things. And he says, Tommy, my God was money. I was so focused on money. It made me delirious. That's all I could think. I was willing to sacrifice my kids. I was willing to sacrifice my wife. I was willing to sacrifice everything just to get my hands on the money. But it was until the Lord took everything that I started realizing it's not worth it. That when I come and grab onto the Lord, when I begin to seek the Lord, that will give me true meaning. That will give me true peace. For King Ahab and even Jezebel, Baal was the secret to their success. Baal was the answer to everything because if Baal listens to us, it solves all of our problems. But Elijah comes in and he says, hey, look, neither do nor rain these years except by my words. The very God that you're going to trust is going to fail you. And here's what he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, before whom I stand, that became his theme. That became the motivation in which he led by, before whom I stand. I wonder of us, when we sit there and read this verse, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain. I wonder when we read this verse, and if you get a chance, underline that phrase, highlight that phrase, whatever it is, it is the God before whom I stand. I wonder how many of us, our lives look, would look differently if we live by this motivation. I wonder how many of us in this room would change our behavior if we live with the very, very notion in which the motivation is the God before whom I stand motivates me to do everything that I do. What will it look differently in your work? What will look differently in your home? What will look differently as you engage with your friends or your children, your spouse? How would your personal life look differently if your motivation is the Lord before whom I stand. I think all of us live in this chat GPT world, a world of saved passwords and all of that stuff. We sit there and go on Gmail and we type in our login name and we put in our password and you know exactly what the next step is. Would you like to save your password? And we press yes. And we never have to worry about it ever again. These days with ChatGPT, we could kind of tell ChatGPT exactly what we need, and it does all of our reports, all of the stuff that we need. That's the life that I think that too often as Christians that we want to live, don't we? We want to sit there and save our password, and automatically we want to come and just accept Christ, and we kind of just come to church every single week. We go to small group or something like that, but that's it. Because our password is saved. We don't have to do anything differently. But what would happen if we truly lived our life with what Elijah says? 
The reason I do what I do is because of the God before whom I stand. That's my motivation. That's what I do, what I do. Tim Keller recently passed away. And Tim was a combination of unique in terms of a pastor, shepherd, as well as theologian all into one. You never met a guy, a pastor, Tim Keller out in New York City, who did such a wonderful job of being so gracious with people who are so different than him. You never got the sense with Tim that he got all called up in his fame, in his knowledge, because he usually was one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. But whoever he engaged with, he just talked with and listened and asked questions. I didn't really get to know Tim. I knew him. I oversaw his projects in Los Angeles as well as Chicago. And I think the last conversation I had with Tim where Tim says, Tommy, I heard you were sick. I've been praying for you. How are you? Tim was the most gracious individual. And I remember one day I sat there in the room with him and someone asked Tim, Tim, how does it feel being famous? And Tim Keller commented to the person, he says, I wrote my book when I was 53 years old, when I was older. So I don't think I ever was really tempted by the fame. I think I became so secure of where my relationship was that it wasn't the fame or the recognition that I was motivated by. And the one thing I wish all Christian leaders are, you should never, never gravitate and joy when people lift you on the pedestal. That's not what you should be aiming at. That was the one thing I appreciated about Tim, that he was so gracious. I remember I was also in Prague as well, too. I came across this individual, John and Yolanda Ibet. John and Yolanda Ibet was these, they stood up and I got a chance to get to know them. They shared their story. And John was extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. He was in the agricultural business in Europe. And he made his fortunes of hundreds of millions of dollars in agriculture in Europe. And he says to me, Tommy, my, my dad was the one who actually started this business. And when he started this business, he wanted my sisters and I to be rich all of our life. And he built this entire business and he was going to give it to our family. We were not believers at all. We were not Christians at all. At Christmas, in one year during college, when you were during college, my sisters actually got into a car and they died because of a car accident. And I was left alone. And for the very first time in my life, I got on my knees and I had to pray. My dad was so angry by everything that was going on because that was his dream. But he still continued to maintain his work. Again, we were not Christians. So pretty soon, later on, I had to help out with the family business. It was just me, my dad, and my mom. But pretty soon, my mom ran off and had an affair with our foreman. And she ran off with the foreman. And it was just my dad and I. My dad disengaged from life. He was so angry and so bitter. And so at 19 years old, I inherited the family business. I came to know the Lord during the Pioneer business, I went to church and all of those different things. But then I got married 
And you know what happened when I got married? My wife ran off with the pastor and had an affair and left me and ran off with the pastor. My life was in shambles. I lost my sisters. I lost my mother. I lost my dad. I lost my wife. And I said to John, I said, John, what is it? What kept you going on? And John says to me, Tommy, I had to choose to follow God every single day. I had to choose to follow God every single day. Well, he soon got married to a second wife, and she was a wonderful Christian woman. But then his dad, who had just come back from the family business, was just sickened by the very fact that his son had dared become a Christian and that he was using all some of the money and the profits from and giving it to charities and Christian initiatives. So then later on, he actually sent a divorce agreement to his son saying that, here's your share, here's my share, I want you out of the family business, I do not want your Christian values as part of this business. But he says to me, I had to continue to learn to follow Christ. I had to learn to love my father. I had to love everything except him for who he was and learn to forgive him. When you and I learn that our motivation is, is embedded in this very fact that before whom I stand, our lives are very different, isn't it? We live our lives differently, don't we? We approach work differently, don't we? We love our spouses differently, don't we? We love our kids differently, don't we? We watch what we do at school. We watch what we do with, because when your entire life is different, because when you live with the motivation before whom I stand, you are different. You stand out. You make a difference in the lives of other people. And that's what Elijah teaches us here in this verse. My God is Jehovah. Elijah the Tishbe of Tishbe in Gilead, who comes from obscurity, who somehow gets a meeting with King Ahab of the northern kingdom, who tells him that your God does not make sense. Do not put your trust in false gods. But live your life with the motivation before whom I stand. And lastly, he then takes him away. And he says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no more rain in the land. It's kind of weird, isn't it? At the height of this controversy, at the height when there's this confrontation with Ahab, God chooses to bring him out and tells him to go to Cherith, and Elijah obeys, and there he lives amongst the land. It, it tells us how long does he stay there. It says that he lives there. He ends up staying there for about three years. It's pretty a long time. Was he burned out? I don't know. Did God have to teach him a lesson? Probably, maybe. We never understood, Stan, what God's plan is for our life. Because God's plans are unique, isn't it? God's plans are different than my plans and your plans. And sometimes we may not always understand it. 
Here Elijah was faithfully giving Ahab the message. And next thing you know, he has to go to Cherith and there he lives for the next three years. And there he lives and he's fed by the ravens and he's fed by the brook and all of these different things. Because God's plan for us and the journey that we have is unique and sometimes way past what we imagined it would be. And that's when we have to follow him. And that's where we have to continue to seek him and go where he tells us to do. And part of it, I think a lot of times is with Elijah, he had to learn how to be in solitude. He had to learn how to be reflecting. He had to learn what it means to, because God is in the business of changing characters to work in our hearts. That's the primary thing God wants us to do. And so often, a lot of times, the wonderful things and the good work and all that stuff is important. But it's the heart. It's the character. That is so key. We talked about this a, little, a couple times. The first time I ever was here when we looked at Gideon. God is in the midst of changing your heart. God is in the midst of molding and shaping you into the person that he wants us to be. God is in the midst of working on your character, your humility, your anger issues, your guilt issues, your baggage issues, all of those things. And so many of those things are not done in active ministry, but they're done in the privacy of your own life. In the privacy of all of the things that he wants to do when it's between you and him in solitude. And so we have to treasure those times and reflect. I, I think I told you in the past, my seminary professor, when I first graduated seminary, and he says to me, Tommy, Tommy, you're very good. You're highly motivated. Remember this. You're always doing, doing, doing. You're always going, going, going. That's a good skill to have. But Tommy, you don't know how to reflect. You don't know how to slow down. You don't know how to think through what God is trying to teach you. And he says this to a point where I'll never forget. If you do not learn how to stop and reflect upon all the things, good or bad, that has happened in your life and allow God to work in the inner character in your life, you will never truly understand what he is calling you to do. And for Elijah, he had to learn solitude. He had to learn reflection. He had to learn to come before the Lord. And that's something you and I need to learn. Elijah, my God, is Jehovah. Elijah, my God, who came from, who's a Tishbit of Tishbe in Gilead, who came from obscurity, who came from a place that no one ever heard of, is sent by God to confront King Ahab of the northern kingdom, who says to him, neither do nor reign these years except by my word, because the God that you trust and place your hope in will not last. And I am saying this because I am motivated by the very fact that God before whom I stand, and God then sends him to Cherith to learn how to reflect. A couple of things as I continue, as we wrap up here. Number, a couple of things. Number one, application. God uses people we least expect to do his work. He used a guy who lived in obscurity 
He lived. He used a guy who we just didn't really pay attention to, who kind of came comes out of nowhere in chapter 17. God uses people we least expect to do His work. Never count anyone out. Never disregard because of your skill or age, because God can use you, even the youngest ones, even the least experienced ones sitting here in this room. God can use you. Number two, our motivation informs our actions. Our motivation informs our actions. What would your life look like if you were motivated by the very fact that God before whom we stand, what would you do differently? What would you say differently? How would you approach your life differently? Our motivation informs our actions. God's direction includes God's provision. That is something you're going to notice all throughout Elijah. Even with the brook over in Cherith, he calls them in. He provides them food through the ravens. He provides them food through the, to, through the brook, all of those things. God's direction includes God's provision. God opens doors and closes doors as he sees fit. That along the journey of following God, there will be times he opens those doors to confront Ahab. Next thing you know, he closes doors and once you go to Cherith, God opens the doors as we see fit. My job and your job is to continue to recognize those doors, pray for those doors, and ask God to guide us in all the doors that we have. And lastly, number five, Elijah becomes the pathway that we see in who Jesus is. He becomes the pointer. He becomes the direction guy. He shows us and allows us to see the greater message of who Jesus Christ is. Because John the Baptist is the new Elijah, and Elijah, through this story, leads us on a journey to ultimately point us to Jesus. He is motivated by the God before whom we stand. The guy, the guy whose literally name means, my God is Jehovah, who literally came from obscurity, who literally got a meeting with the king and King Ahab, who literally confronts him and says that your God, is, is, don't put your trust on him, it's going to fail you. Who literally has a motivation, who truly lived by the God before whom we stand, but looks for open doors and closes doors as he sees fit, allows God to continue to work within his heart because it's the character, the inner life of a leader that matters. How would your life be different if we live by that motivation? What would you do differently? How would you treat your spouse differently? How would that look like for your finances? How would that look like for your time? How would look, that look like in terms of what you get involved in? The God before whom we stand. What would you do differently? Let's pray. 